0: Hello and welcome to another episode of Chemically Speaking, the official podcast of the Royal Australian Chemical Institute. My name is Dr. Mac Griffith, and today we'll be delving into the future of energy storage in Australia. For those of you who have been eagerly awaiting this episode for the past week, we apologize for the delay to regular programming as we worked around the latest COVID developments in Australia. Just another reason to make sure you subscribe to us on your favorite podcast platform to make sure you get all the latest updates. minute they're released. And as always, we'd love to hear from you. So head on over to the podcast website, www.raci.org.au backslash chemically speaking to leave us some feedback on the topics you would like covered in future episodes. While you're on the website, why not check out the benefits of signing up as a new member of the RACI or for all of you current members, don't forget to renew your membership for 2021. Now, for everyone eagerly awaiting their latest lockdown distractions, let's jump straight into today's episode. As we learnt on the last episode, there's little doubt that Australia's future energy generation is going to rely more and more heavily on renewable sources like solar and wind. But this leaves us with a problem that's becoming quite the famous catch cry for renewable energy. What happens when the sun doesn't shine and the wind doesn't blow? One option could be to develop other sustainable generation technologies like bioenergy that can supply energy on demand, much like our current coal-fired generators operate. The other option is energy storage, where we save up the excess energy produced when renewable sources are operating, and then use this stored energy at other times when they're not. To put it simply, energy storage enables electricity to be saved for a later time when and where it is needed the most. Indeed, we already use energy storage in our electricity grid to ensure uninterrupted power during blackouts and other power disruptions. When it comes to embracing energy storage, Australians are voting with their feet and their wallets. In 2015, we only had a few hundred home battery installations in this country, but in 2019, this ramped up to over 22,000. In 2020, there were over 1 gigawatt hours of new storage capacity installed in Australia, showing us a pathway towards the 20 to 50 gigawatt hours that it's estimated we'll need by 2040 as our coal-fired generators switch off. But how do we know which technologies have the most promise? Where should we be focusing our research and development efforts? As it turns out, there are a lot of different energy storage solutions but there are a few where Australia has a natural advantage based on our huge amounts of land, sun, and, in some parts of the country, water. This has seen massive recent investment by both government and private industry in three major storage technologies that will drive Australia's energy landscape into the future. These being large-scale batteries, hydro energy, and hydrogen storage. In today's episode, we'll learn a little bit more about each of these technologies, including how they work, why they're taking off in Australia, and where our country's chemists are still needed to take these technologies from an idea through to industry. Our first guest today is Dr. Thomas Ellis, who is the lead battery scientist in the R&D team at Gelion Technologies. Thomas completed a PhD in chemistry at the University of New South Wales before heading abroad to work as a researcher at CNRS in France. Upon returning to Australia, he became a research scientist at CapEx Limited, kickstarting a passion for the industrial application of new battery technologies that he's taken with him to his new role. So, Tom, thank you very much for speaking with us today on Chemically Speaking.
1: My pleasure, Matt. Thanks for having me.
0: You were trained in one of Australia's first nanotechnology degrees at UNSW. Were you always attracted to the chemical sciences or did your experience with this degree inspire you to pursue a career in this multidisciplinary field?
1: Uh, Exactly that, Matt. I found chemistry in high school confusing and rather particular um, I was way more interested in the physics and the nano world, But going through the nanotechnology degree at UNSW, I got exposed to several schools in science, materials, microbiology, chemistry, and physics. I eventually gravitated towards chemistry because it seemed the, the most practical and had the largest potential for new, new discoveries, at least to my eye. <laughs>
0: Fantastic. And so you you follow this passion over to France and have quite a unique opportunity where you publish a paper with a Nobel laureate as a co-author. And then you return to Australia and start working on battery systems for industry. So what inspired this shift from what sounds like quite a high-flying academia career to one in industry?
1: Well, you know, the career getting published on Nobel laureate papers, there's there's plenty of people on on these papers, but uh, it is more or less opportunity-based. You know, the Labour system in France has a limit of temporary postdoc contracts for three years. So in order to stay, I would have needed a permanent role which wasn't available. So I was looking to changing cities and expertise regardless. As academia, as a postdoc, you have to move around a lot. And my paper record at the time wasn't high enough to get really permanent positions. So the opportunity to work on supercapacitors with uh, CapEx in my hometown was far too good to pass up and build the opportunity to go into industry and really, you know, not just create things, but really bring things to the world.
0: Fascinating. And and I guess a challenge that many of us grapple with at a similar stage of of our careers. And so you make this decision to go and work for CapEx in industry and a few years pass and you then have this opportunity to move to Gelion technologies, becoming a project manager, developing an exciting new type of battery. So for the uninitiated amongst us, what are the main components of a battery if we were to just pull one apart?
1: The most fundamental components uh, basically have two conductive materials, electrodes, which are immersed in a salty solution, an electrolyte. Basically, what makes the battery store charge is is to stick a material to the electrode which is happy to either take or give electrons, making positively and negatively, depending on the side. The electrolyte ensures the balance of charge by moving the ions, which inevitably get generated or consumed by each reaction on each electrode. But the electrons are only able to move in the electrodes. So the ideal situation is you have materials on each side which have a high energy difference, so IEU voltage, and also materials that are happy to either give or take electrons without aging themselves significantly. So We tend to focus on electrochemical reversible reactions, and those are the ones that really draw our attention
2: in battery worlds.
0: Okay, so we're looking for something that's quite electrically active, but also quite a stable chemical reaction. That's exactly right. So batteries are probably the most well-known of all the energy storage technologies. What are the major advantages that batteries provide when thinking about how we store and reuse excess energy that we might create?
1: In short, simplicity. Batteries—they have stable voltages. They—they—they uh, they, they take and give energy quite happily. One can string a whole bunch of batteries together to whatever energy storage requirements you need. In the current market, that's ideal for stabilizing transitional power. In the case of like the South Australian Tesla battery, is pretty much paid for itself within two and a half years just from the savings from not using fast response energy supplies like gas plants and which is great for short term profit but for the long term majority renewable economy we will need to make up our storage energy ability significantly to cope with a full day's load you know shifting the solar energy to the evening and you know shifting wind when it's when it's not
0: blowing Okay, so batteries are cheap, they're easy, they're modular and they're great at rapidly distributing energy and then perhaps longer term, we might need to start thinking about some other solutions. Is that sort of a fair summary? Absolutely. Okay, now I understand that the batteries gel iron are making are a little bit different to the lithium ion technologies that you would typically find in a battery on the supermarket shelves today. So what have you changed with your technology And what are the benefits that that change brings? Our focus has
1: been largely centered around zinc bromine technology. This is a water-based technology with some very efficient power storing reactions, so alluding to what you were saying before, that the reactions are very happy to go backwards and forwards. It is most commonly used as a flow-based battery, but we found we could get rid of all the pumps and mechanical components and build a much simpler construction with the idea to drop manufacturing costs and time. But the real benefit comes from the resilience and the safety. Lithium ions often need to be heat managed to minimize the risk of catching fire or aging quickly and losing their capacity. With these aqueous systems, we're inherently fire resistant and have a high thermal tolerance, which means we should be able to make these things cycle for a very long time without losing much capacity at all.
0: Sounds excellent. Now, you've mentioned capacity there, and as we know, it is one of the key parameters by which you would measure how good a battery is, or that is, how much energy can it store. So, what is it that determines the capacity of a battery, and what are the biggest batteries that are available on the market today?
1: The biggest determinant of capacity is basically the elements you use. So, in the case, lithium is probably one of the more energy-dense materials on the planet and has some of the highest energy densities, smallest size and the lightest, just purely from its position on the periodic table. So, current lithium batteries can have around like 600 watt-hours per liter or maybe 300 watt-hours per kilo, I can't remember exactly, but that should increase over time with silicon and solid-state batteries. But if you're just talking about large batteries, what the largest ones, the ones that come to mind are the rack-mounted batteries. So they're the most common that would be installed in industrial applications. So when you think of those server racks that one might think of when you're talking server farms for like AWS or like internet, that kind of stuff. They're basically about the same size. And each of those is about three kilowatt hours in terms of construction. Which is about the biggest you can get. I mean, obviously, if you want to talk about a full-on biggest one, you're talking about Hornsdale in South Australia, which is 200 megawatt hours in total, and which is only beaten by California's Gateway recently. But in Victoria, you'll soon be getting a 300 megawatt hour battery near Geelong. So it's starting to feel like a race to who can make the biggest battery, like skyscrapers in terms of who's got this tallest skyscraper. <laughs>
0: Sounds like a technology race that we all benefit from. Indeed. (laughs) And so I guess if we were to install one of these, say, large batteries on our typical Australian household, how many days could it run the household for? And what's its typical lifetime if we're using it every day before you would need to replace it?
1: Yeah, good question. So going back to the rack mounted battery, so they're about three kilowatt hours Let's say you're talking 25 kilowatt hours a day, which is quite a high amount, depending on the household. So you're talking about two and a half hours worth of storage a day. So you need about 10 racks for one house for one full day. But, you know, you usually need less than that because you can use your solar power directly during the day or your wind power directly without storing it. But as for something like Tesla's Powerwall, which is about, from memory, is about 15 kilowatt hours so they often get away with just smaller amounts as for lifetime teslas are they claim to rate up to five thousand cycles so that's normally we we rate batteries by how many cycles you can do before we consider them dead even pretty average batteries you would still expect a thousand cycles without losing too much so once you're talking about cycling about once a day you're talking between three to eight years depending on the quality of the batteries but we often consider, when we say dead, for a lithium ion especially, they, we would say its lost its capacity is reduced to 80% of its original capacity. So you're still going to have a lot of capacity around after those three to eight years, assuming the system can handle it. So even old ones are good. <laughs>
0: <laughs> Great to know. Now, it's still relatively early days for and I understand you've only been a startup company for a few years now. But do you have an idea yet on what the costs of your batteries are and how they might stack up against existing technologies in the market?
1: Yeah, I can't say yet exactly what price we're going to enter the market, where our aim is to really challenge lithium and lead acid-based technologies to make them far more practical and cheaper options. So, for example, with lithium, you need high-level thermal management, which is something we can potentially live without. So we're constantly looking in the market feedback to how we can gain some market edges just by simple circumstance. And our chemistry can have unique advantages over lithium ions, especially in stationary applications. And we're always looking in the market to get feedback, feedback place where we want to be. But what we, you know, what we know what July is is part of the future of renewables. We know lithium can't possibly do all its own, simply from a long-term raw material supply point of view. July is here to broaden the world's battery technology, which we need to make many types of batteries to make the world truly really renewable. I believe July has a real role to play here, but we will see how we go. And we definitely, we're, there's no point for us existing if we can't challenge the lithium and the lead acid.
0: Uh, fantastic. What an awesome vision of the future that provides for us. So, what is the role that Australia's chemists will need to play in developing new batteries and allowing them to become part of our future energy storage solutions like you've just mentioned?
1: Well, there's always going to be an appetite for more energy materials. So if I was to give it things that that I want from a battery material, I want high elemental abundance, meaning that I can get it for cheaper, that reversibility, and just high energy density. So... With those things, there's still problems with all these things like lithium and things like that. So there's plenty of room there to innovate, to build on them, which I think we're basically going to need all the uh, technologies we can get in order to make batteries really important in the future. So the batteries are definitely going to have to be recycled. Like That's one key area which chemists can really bring some technical prowess to the fore and I can also see things like the hydrogen economy becoming uh, fuel for, say, transport trucks, which may be more effective than, say, a lithium-ion battery for a truck, you know. So generating more hydrogen would be immensely helpful and better ways to do it or more energy-efficient ways to do it. And I always – I just generally feel that right now where even chemistry has still got a lot of stuff that is yet to learn, there's so much to – chemistry is still – has so many things to provide the world with hasn't done yet. It still a, it feels like an old science, but I I only see very large pockets of knowledge which we haven't fully explored yet.
0: But what a way to look at it, an old science being reapplied for new problems. Indeed. Tom, it's been fascinating chatting with you today. And so on behalf of us here at Chemically Speaking, thank you once again for your time. Yeah, thanks,
1: Matt, and thanks for having me on.
0: Welcome back to Chemically Speaking. I'm Dr. Matt Griffith, and today we're discussing the future of energy storage in Australia. Our second guest is Chris Gwynn, who is the project director for the Battery of the Nation initiative at Hydro Tasmania. Chris is an experienced energy industry executive with a technical background in engineering and a proven track record in delivering entrepreneurial results in the renewable energy and national electricity market. Attracted to fluid environments, that require strategy, vision and a clear implementation plan, Chris has applied his leadership to develop one of the most exciting national energy initiatives of the past decade. Chris, thank you very much for talking with us today on Chemically Speaking.
2: It's a pleasure Matthew, it's good
0: to be here. Now, you come from a family of tradies which influenced your decision to do an engineering degree at the University of Wollongong. Were you always attracted to science and engineering growing up?
2: in a family that had builders and electricians and plumbers and whatever else, so you sort of are always always doing things. And uh, look, I always loved maths and physics at school as well, so I always enjoyed those subjects. The advice from my parents was, though oh, you're too smart to do a trades Chris, so well, I think you should go to uni." <laughs> so well, that was pretty much it. It sort of seemed like a natural place to go, and I ended up doing an electrical engineering degree.
0: Excellent. And so you you move into employment with the with steelworks and in engineering. And then from there you move on to Hydro Tasmania, so quite a shift. What inspired this move from the steel industry to the renewable energy industry?
2: Yeah, you know, I'd always had an interest in, in renewable energy. I was at uni during the nineties, and you know, I think the renewable energy industry was, was certainly in its early formative stages, and. Yeah, you know, I did a thesis on impact of power quality impacts of, of solar panels on residential networks, just to sort of spark some interest even more. And I did a lot of process control and automation at the steelworks, so I sort of had a skill set that I felt could sort of easily transfer into an industry that I guess I had more of a personal interest in. And I think, in hindsight, it was it was a great move because I got in on an industry that really has just gone from strength to strength ever since. So, whilst I still have a soft spot for the for the steel industry and still have some friends there, these days my passion is certainly in, in the the global transition that's going
0: on in energy these days okay very interesting and so as the name suggests hydro tasmania is focused on water-based energy but perhaps people might be unfamiliar with the way that water can not only be used to create energy but also to store energy so could you explain for us the basic principles of energy storage using water
2: yeah it's to create electricity from water, you sort of need to store it in the first place. You can have a pure run of river hydro system where the water just runs down a river and you run it through a turbine. But most of the bigger hydropower stations you see around the world usually have a, a significant sort of upper reservoir where they, they hold water and it's usually water that's, that's been picked up from a natural catchment area. And then that water is transferred through either pipes or tunnels or penstocks to a hydropower station, which is usually at a much lower altitude. And then that elevation drop, that water, that, the Force created from the water dropping from a higher elevation to a lower one is where you get that energy conversion through the turbines and and how you, how you create electricity. So it's probably important for people to realise too that there's sort of two basic sorts of hydropower. So there's your what you'd call conventional hydropower, where the water is caught in a in a large reservoir and it, you run it through a power station. But then the water keeps running downhill. You know it might leave the hydro system altogether and go to a local river, or it might cascade down to another hydro station. But the water doesn't get recycled in an industrial sense. In a climate sense, it clearly recycles because you have evaporation and you've got a climate cycle. So that's what you'd call conventional hydropower. That's what you see mostly in Australia these days, certainly here in Tasmania and also in the snowy. But then you have what they call pumped hydro. So pumped hydro is essentially where you have contained upper reservoir and the contained lower reservoir and effectively what you do is that you run the water from the upper reservoir down through the pumped hydro station at the bottom and you generate electricity from that process but you hold the water there and then what happens is that when there's excess electricity in the system you then turn the pumps on in a pumped hydro station and you pump that water from the lower reservoir back up to the upper reservoir and keep it up there for uh, uh, when it might need to be used next. So it's important to note there's sort of two basic sorts of hydropower that we talk about in the energy industry these days.
0: Excellent. And so broadly speaking, when the water's flowing downhill, we create electricity and when we pump it back up the hill, we store that energy.
2: Yeah, exactly right. And look, pumped hydro is becoming a very, very hot topic, not just in Australia, but globally, because when you start to transition to a power system that becomes more dominated by variable sources of renewable energy, which is wind and solar, what actually happens is you have a lot of time where there's too much energy in the system, the wind's blowing, the sun's shining, and there's not enough customers to use all that energy. So you want to store that energy. So you know, effectively, uh, you're looking at storage technologies that will use that excess electricity when there's times of excess You know, that's batteries, that's pumped hydro, and in the future, it may well be hydrogen as well. And then when you have those periods, say, in the evenings or at night when the wind has died down and there's no sun, and then, you know, but people still want their lights on at home and still want to watch TV, that's when you turn those batteries on and those pumped hydro units on, and then you run, you inject that energy back into the system. So that's the basics of one of the fundamental changes that's occurring in the energy industry in the power system.
0: Yeah, and and what a change it is. And I guess that brings us to your next opportunity, which was in 2017, you're presented with the option to lead the Battery of the Nation initiative. So could you tell us about what this exciting project aims to do?
2: Yeah, I'll I'll try and keep it pretty simple because it's reasonably complex, but the important attributes, the really valuable attributes in the power system of the future are going to be if you have an asset that can store energy, and if you have and if that asset, you can turn the power on and off in terms of you can control it. That's a really valuable resource, and that's what hydropower can do. So the idea about the battery of the nation is that we have a big conventional hydropower system already, but we also have the opportunity to build pumped hydro in Tasmania because we don't have India at the moment because we don't need it. But we need to be better connected to the rest of the market and in Victoria in particular, because that's, that's where you're getting the major transition occurring away from coal-fired generation to sources of wind and solar. So the idea is that if you have more electrical interconnection between Tasmania and Victoria, what happens is you stimulate a lot of new wind and solar investment both in Tasmania and Victoria, and that's essentially because those investors all of a sudden have access to a hydropower scheme that they can use to store their excess energy when the market prices are lower. And effectively, what that then does is open up an opportunity for Hydro Tasmania to invest in pumped hydro in Tasmania. So effectively, you know, building pumped hydro assets in Tasmania, it increases the number of megawatts that we can provide into the national grid at any one point in time. But it also allows us to use our existing water resources more flexibly. So you know, the ability to manage those water resources in different ways and keep it in storage for when the market needs that that energy so that's essentially the opportunity that is there for Tasmania and it really comes off the back of that natural resource which is the water and our topography.
0: How very exciting and so you've mentioned some excess energy in Tasmania and I must admit Tasmania has a very impressive record with renewable energy generating almost all the energy that the state uses from renewable sources So how much extra storage capacity is typically going to be available from Tasmanian pumped hydro stations and how are you going to supply the rest of Australia?
2: So it's probably good to note, Matthew, that the difference between energy and capacity in the power industry. So Tasmania doesn't right now have an excess in energy it's pretty well balanced as in terms of supply and demand on an annual basis. What it does have is an ex, is a excess capacity. So, And that's because the power system in Tasmania was built over 100 years to capture the energy, which meant that you sort of overbuilt the capacity. If you build more interconnectors, well, then you have more access to new wind and solar resources, um, which brings more energy in and uh, frees up that capacity to be used in the market. And the capacity is the thing that's valuable because – you know, when the wind and solar isn't there and people still want their hot showers and cold beers, as the saying goes, it's those sorts of storage technologies like hydro, both pumped hydro and conventional hydro and batteries that are going to be really important. Look, there's a lot of development opportunity in Tasmania. You know, we did a concept study back in 2017 and 2018 that found a whole number of, of potential pumped hydro sites, many, many thousands of megawatts. But you can't, the, the constraint for Tasmania is that interconnection. So, you know, Based on the current proposal, which is about 1,500 megawatts of more interconnection between Victoria and Tasmania, and that project is called Marinus Link, Now we'd be able to build about a 700 or an 800 megawatt pumped hydro site on the back of that investment, uh, as well as utilise the existing scheme. So lots of opportunity for pumped hydro investment in Tasmania, it's got great water resources and great topography, but it really is a question of delivery to the market, You know, and, and really that's why the interconnected projects are so important, not just for Tasmania, but interconnectors between all the states are going to become really important if we want to move this energy around in the
0: future. Okay, so we've just mentioned that this capacity is exceptionally important for an energy storage technology. So what are the typical factors that determine the storage capacity for a pumped hydro station?
2: Yeah. I think for your listeners too, Matthew, the capacity can be seen in two ways. It's the electrical capacity, which is the megawatts that you can put into the power system. And then you've got the capacity in terms of how much energy you can store. So we we call that storage duration in the industry. For a pumped hydro station, the capacity of the scheme uh, usually depends on a couple of things. One is the head of the system. When I say the head, that is basically the elevation difference between the top reservoir and the lower reservoir. The more head you have, the more pressure you have on the turbines, therefore the more megawatts you can produce per unit of water. The second one is the horizontal displacement between those two reservoirs. So, for example, if the upper reservoir is almost directly above the lower reservoir, you're going to have a very steep set of tunnels, which means your efficiency is going to be higher. If those two reservoirs are a long, long way away from each other, you have lower efficiencies in the system because it's got to travel more across land. Sort of, if that makes sense. So they're the key things in terms of megawatts capacity. In terms of storage duration, that's about topography, you know. And you, you've got to find places to develop pumped hydro that has that vertical displacement, but also has good potential areas that you can build reservoirs to store the water. And that's that's the other important one. And that's Getting up getting sites in the country, Matthew, that have both of those attributes is is quite a complex task.
0: Yeah, that was actually leads me on to my next question very well, which is I presume you can't simply build a successful pumped hydro station anywhere. So what are the fundamental factors that you would look for when locating a new hydro storage power plant?
2: Yeah, so I've mentioned a couple already. I've mentioned the, the location of the reservoirs and the elevation or the, the head difference between the two. Uh, they're, from the engineering and a design and construction perspective, they're obviously critical. Cool. You've got access to electrical infrastructure is important as well. So you might have a great pumped hydro site somewhere, but if you've got to build a 100-kilometre transmission line to get it to the national grid, well, then that's quite an expensive project to do. So if you're close to existing electrical infrastructure, that's really handy. If you're close to existing hydropower infrastructure, that's also helpful because you can utilize the existing hydropower infrastructure. And that's why Snowy Hydro and Hydro Tasmania are both very active in this in this industry now. But importantly, you've got to, you know, there's a lot of things you've got to think about in terms of social, environmental and and heritage values for sites. So these are big infrastructure projects. So you need to think really carefully around what are really good sites to develop a pump hydro. And I'll give some examples without naming sites. When we shortlisted our pump hydro sites in terms of viable development opportunities, we actually left a couple of really good sites off the list. And when I say really good sites, they were great engineering sites. They had great elevation and they had great reservoirs, but there were there were social and heritage issues that we just didn't think that they were the right sort of projects to take forward. So, you know, you sort of, you do what I call multivariate analysis when you're screening early on. And they're the sorts of things you've got to take into account when finding a good site.
0: Yeah. Okay. And I suppose the most obvious one is rainfall and Australia is famously affected by severe droughts. So how much does the storage capacity of a pumped hydro plant typically become affected when the nation encounters one of these frequent droughts?
2: Yeah, It's a really interesting observation, Matthew, that I'll bring you back to the comment around the two types of hydropower. There's conventional hydropower, which is where the rain falls, you catch it and it runs downstream. Those sorts of schemes are very sensitive to drought because you rely on the climate cycle to refill the reservoirs pump hydro is different though because you're actually mechanically recycling the water so once you actually have a scheme that's full in terms of you have the water that you need to be able to transfer back and forth all you need to then do is manage the losses the water losses in the operation those water losses may be due to evaporation or that may be due to natural leakage through the scheme so the amount of water you need once you've got the system in place is actually quite low it's Pumped hydro facilities aren't really that exposed as a risk to droughts. You know, I do note that some of the pumped hydro projects that are being suggested in places like New South Wales and Queensland are actually looking at using water that's at the moment being used for coal-fired power stations. So the idea then is that there are some sites that are going, well, these coal-fired generators, we know when they're going to retire. There's these water allocations that we could repurpose to use for pumped hydro installations, and they're actually using a lot less water than the coal-fired station actually uses now, because they just need the water to to set up the installation and then to top it up a little bit as time goes on. The pumped it's exposure to drought risk is not really a major concern with this technology.
0: Well, fantastic. A water-based storage solution that is drought tolerant and shifts the electricity load from renewables in the day to when we need it in the night. What a fantastic Australian initiative. Chris, it's been a real treat speaking to you today and uh, all the best from Chemically Speaking for your future. Thank you for talking with us today.
2: Thanks for the opportunity, Matthew. Have a good day.
0: Welcome back to Chemically Speaking, I'm Dr. Matt Griffith and today we're discussing the future of energy storage in Australia. Our final guest on today's episode is Dr. Patrick Burr, who is a senior lecturer at the University of New South Wales in the School of Mechanical and Manufacturing Engineering. Patrick developed a passion for academic research in his early years and has pursued this passion from Italy to the UK, where he completed a PhD at Imperial College and then moved out to Australia where he's developing innovative insights into new energy materials using his skills in modeling, with a particular focus on hydrogen. Patrick, thank you very much for being with us today on Chemically Speaking. My pleasure. Now, you grew up in Italy with two parents who were both academics, being dubbed with the nickname the professor at just five years old. So is it fair to say that you've always been destined for a career in science?
3: I guess you could say so, yes. I think. It's because I've always been, been a very curious person. I always wanted to know how things work and, and why they work. And I guess at one point in my career, I did try to sort of steer away from academic life. I did start to wonder, oh, am I just doing this because this is the only thing I know? And so towards the end of my sort of uni years, I did do an internship in industry just to see how it was, what it was all about. And yeah, I came back really convinced academia was for me, actually. Uh, so that was good. I guess I just like the freedom of thought that comes with academia.
0: Yeah, excellent. And so after these early uni years, you then end up following all of your friends across to the UK and almost by accident, you find yourself doing a PhD in biomaterials at Imperial College, but then switch your degree to the modeling of materials properties for nuclear energy applications after meeting a very inspiring supervisor. So what was it about this person that convinced you to switch your focus?
3: Uh, Yeah, I guess it's twofold actually. Um, On the one hand, as you said, I ended up doing biomaterials a little bit by accident. And what we mean by that is, I was moving country, I was going to a brand new university, new place, and I was told this was a great university. I didn't even know that Imperial College was a great university at the time. I was very naive. So I was sure that I was sort of doomed to fail. And so I figured, oh, if I'm going to fail, I might as well fail at something I don't know anything about. So I might learn something on the process. And that's why I chose biomaterials rather than bioengineering. And In the process, I realized that I just fell in love with materials. I ended up discovering that the material side, to me, was more exciting than the bio side. And I still find biochemistry a really exciting field. But the materials, there was just something about it. The fact that how materials work and the fact that we design materials to do some really crazy stuff, it really appealed to me. And at the same time, there was a change in my ethos. I've always been a very strong environmentalist and I was starting to think, well, with biomaterials, I can probably help people if I'm successful at it. But with energy materials, I might be able to help the entire world if we can succeed in our mission. And so I decided to switch to materials for energy. And in doing that, of course, uh, I chose relevant things for photovoltaic, uh, optoelectronics, and I had to choose nuclear materials. At the time, like most environmentalists, I was brought up to believe that nuclear energy is like bad, is a bad thing, and you could avoid it. So I, I was very anti-nuclear, actually. So I chose nuclear materials as one of the many courses because you know, it was know-your-enemy kind of thing. But of course that was the first time in a university setting where I was sort of faced with the facts and like there wasn't anyone trying to sway me into it's this way or that way. You at university, you asked to make up your mind. You asked to calculate the things for yourself and conclude your own conclusions. And in doing that, I sort of very quickly realized that all the assumptions I made about nuclear were all wrong. It was very confronting for me to realize that all everything I believed was probably not right. And in all of this, there was this catalyst, as you mentioned, Professor Robin Grimes, who is an utterly inspiring person and ended up having the misfortune of being my PhD supervisor and still does influence my life to date. And so that's how I ended up working on energy materials with nuclear being one of the key focus for me.
0: And so after completing this PhD, you then move to UNSW and start to do a lot of work on modeling hydrogen, since it turns out that hydrogen plays a very important role in the structural properties of many different materials. But you quickly realize that you can link your two passions and provide insight into how materials might store hydrogen for energy. So what is it that makes hydrogen so interesting to work on for this purpose?
3: Hydrogen is absolutely fascinating, you're right. Um, If you look at a a first glance and you look at the product table from a chemical point of view, well, hydrogen is the first element, it's the simplest electronic structure, it's only got one electron. You know, we've been studying the electronic structure of hydrogen from even a high school, you're told about the electronic orbitals of hydrogen. Uh, So it should be quite easy. And the reality is, couldn't be more different. It's incredibly nuanced, the type of chemical bonding that hydrogen has with higher orbitals. And the fact that it's so light provides some unique property. It actually can quantum tunnel in the same way we know electrons can quantum tunnel because of the wave particle duality and those sort of really cool quantum mechanical effects. Well, hydrogen can do it too. And is the only, really, the only element in the predictable table that has this property. And that's, I mean, fascinating, but it's also really a challenge. Because now it's very difficult to find hydrogen. It's very difficult to have experimental means to measure it. It's very difficult to model it because of the chemical complexity. And of course, it's actually difficult to keep it in one place because hydrogen can move around so easily, even at really low temperature, close to near zero, it can move around. It makes it very difficult to store it. And and that's one of the reasons why hydrogen storage is such a challenge.
0: Right, so we've heard a little bit about different storage technologies like batteries or pumped hydro.
3: So what are the advantages of storing energy using hydrogen? Well, I guess the the main advantage is that it's a chemical form of storage. So different ways of storing energies have different advantages and disadvantages. And you probably want a mix of all of them, right, to solve different problems in your grid. And chemical storage is very, very good for long-term storage. So if you think about fossil fuels, fossil fuels is an example where over millennia we have, well, the Earth has turned, uh, converted all the energy that was available into a form of chemical energy that we can very crudely burn, you in know, internal combustion engine, for instance, and produce a lot of electricity. So we're storing energy for a very long time. And hydrogen could do the same thing. We could produce hydrogen when we've got excess energy and then store it. Uh Not really for minutes or hours, even days we could store it. We could do it for days, but we could even store it across seasons or across years, and that 's something that other technologies are not really well suited for. Some are some aren 't like batteries batteries are fantastic at sub second or sub micro uh, sub minute sort of release and absorption of energy they 're not that good to store large amounts of energy for a large amount of time. You probably could do it, but you're really being inefficient. You're using a lot of energy and resources and CO2 to do something that they're not really good at creating hydrogen. And then you've got to store it. And that's really where the tricky bit is. Because then to use hydrogen, you can either burn it or use it through a fuel cell, again, to turn into water. So you start with water, you produce hydrogen, and you end up with water again at the end. The storing bit is where it gets tricky. You can either store it as gas, and that's not technically too difficult. There are some challenges there. But the problem is this hydrogen is very light and you need a lot of pressure in order to store a significant amount of hydrogen and to have a lot of pressure typically 300 to 700 bar of pressure you need very very thick wall pressure vessel so now you have a container that weighs a lot to store something that weighs very little so that's not very good for transportation because at the end of the day most of the weight that you're transporting is not your energy density but it's just a container It's a little bit like the gas in your barbecue, the gas bottle, even when it's empty, it's pretty heavy. And the same thing is with hydrogen, but to a much greater scale because hydrogen is very light. So an alternative is to increase the energy density of hydrogen, and you can do that by making it liquid. The challenge there is that hydrogen, you've got to cool it down a lot to make it liquid. It's below minus 280 Celsius before it becomes liquid at atmospheric pressure. That means you're gonna spend a lot of energy just to keep it cryogenically cooled. And that of course has its drawbacks because now you're spending a lot of energy just to keep energy stored, which is not very effective. And then the final way in which you can do it is actually to store it in a solid state. Now this is not solid hydrogen, but it's hydrogen usually in the form of a metal hydride. And that's kept a solid by just having a metal that really likes to absorb hydrogen, and it will absorb quite a lot of it. And then you can release the hydrogen by applying pressure or temperature, usually temperature, to release it. The disadvantage there is that usually you can only take a few weight percent of hydrogen, like two or three weight percent hydrogen. But bear in mind, hydrogen is so light that a few weight percent hydrogen is actually not that little amount of hydrogen.
0: Right. So are there any hydrogen storage technologies that are already in use in the market today?
3: Indeed, indeed there are. From large-scale hydrogen storage to even domestic. You can even buy domestic appliances that you can put in your house similar to you know Tesla Powerwall for, for battery. You can get equivalent things that do similar things for your house by using hydrogen. And again, the advantage there is you can really store from day to night very, very easily. And you can produce electricity by converting the hydrogen into water through a fuel cell, and you can convert it back into hydrogen when you've got excess electricity or when the electricity price is very low. And this technology for the house tend to be using solid-state hydrogen storage. Right, excellent. So
0: we've got this technology, it's already there and it's got a lot of positives, particularly for long-term
3: storage. So how sustainable are hydrogen storage technologies? That's a very good question. I guess it all boils down to how you make the hydrogen in the first place. Hydrogen, at the end of the day, is just a vector. Like it's a way of storing energy. If you make the hydrogen using sustainable technologies, then hydrogen itself is very sustainable. Uh, There's a lot of talk of creating hydrogen from renewable energy when there is excess supply of energy, and that's a very good way of producing hydrogen sustainably. Another way that is also sustainable would be to use other clean energy technology like nuclear. I I mentioned my passion for nuclear earlier, or anything that in the end can, can allow you to produce and consume hydrogen indefinitely. So I guess I'm not really answering your question. It depends on how you make it.
0: Yeah, excellent. So we're sort of, I guess if we're splitting water using solar cells or we're using some sort of clean nuclear fuel, then it's sustainable, but we don't want to be making our hydrogen from fossil fuels or natural gas. God, you're a good science communicator. (laughs) And so along with the science side of things and the sustainability side of things, we also have to consider economics for technologies. So how do the costs of hydrogen storage technologies stack up against other types of energy storage,
3: like, for instance, batteries? I guess they're competitive in some way. And what I mean by that is that it's horses for courses. There's some situations in which batteries are clearly in a clear advantage. And then there are other situations, especially in the long storage duration where hydrogen may be more competitive. And of course, hydrogen is still not as mature a technology as batteries and will both need to improve. I think there's a lot of scope for batteries to become increasingly more competitive in certain niche applications.
0: Right. Now, Along with all of this, there's also a unique perception for hydrogen, perhaps being most widely known as a highly explosive gas, that there could be some safety risks with using it in our day-to-day life. So how safe are hydrogen storage technologies?
3: Well, the short answer is actually very safe. You are right in saying there's a perception of risk, but the real risk is actually much lower. But of course, that's something that we need to deal with, right? the real risk might be much lower than the perception of the risk is because actually hydrogen is not that explosive under most conditions. You need to reach certain conditions before hydrogen actually becomes explosive. Well, if you compare it with everyday fuels like you know just gasoline, well, they are much more explosive under sort of typical conditions we operate in. Another way of seeing this is that we already are happy with storing lithium batteries in our pocket, and I think that's an acceptable risk. I would consider containing a small canister of hydrogen in my pocket lower risk than having a lithium-ion battery. Not saying that lithium-ion batteries are risky, just that actually hydrogen storage technologies are very low risk now. Well, that's very interesting. So it's actually an extremely safe technology.
0: So we've got this safe, sustainable technology, which is very good for long-term storage, but it's not quite in the market yet. What are some of the main challenges that Australia's chemists will need to help solve in order to ensure that hydrogen takes its place in our nation's energy storage future?
3: Well, the biggest challenge there I think is related with what I think is the most fascinating aspect of hydrogen, the fact that it's very difficult to keep it in one place and it really wants to go everywhere. And in particular, it likes to go into metals and embrittle them. And that's a big challenge because when we build infrastructure, we will necessarily be using metal and metallic alloys. And metals are no good if become brittle. So one of the key challenges we've got to face is actually design new materials that can withstand hydrogen in the operating conditions that we're going to be using them. And that is indeed one of the great areas of research that is expanding in Australia. Fascinating. Well, Patrick, it's been
0: really illuminating talking with you today and we've learnt quite a lot about our hydrogen storage future. So on behalf of us here at Chemically Speaking, thanks for joining and all the best for the future.
3: Thank you and thank you for having me.
0: New energy storage technologies will transform the way energy is used throughout the world in the near future. By allowing renewable generation technologies to take a larger share of the power generation load, energy storage will make our usage more flexible and reliable by shifting the load and smoothing out the supply of renewable energy from solar and wind. The big questions to ask are almost the same as those we asked in the last episode for new generation technologies. That is, which storage technologies suit our nation the best? Are these new technologies ready for use today? And can these storage technologies deliver our energy the same low prices we've come to rely upon from coal and gas? As our guests have outlined today, it's clear that a mix of technologies will be needed, each suited to a different purpose. Chemical storage using batteries excels at short-term delivery of power, perfect for stopping short blackouts and powering homes for hours at a time. But for energy requirements where we want to store for longer time periods, pumped hydro initiatives like the Battery of the Nation become very attractive for Australia as a 100% renewable and sustainable storage solution. And when we want to store our energy for weeks, months or even years, we can put it into renewable and transportable fuels in the form of hydrogen which perhaps most resembles the way we currently use gas and petrol. Excitingly, all of these technologies are available today, and with the help of our nation's chemists, they're becoming more efficient and ever cheaper with each new product developed. The future of energy storage offers us some amazing opportunities, and after today's discussion, it's clear that Australia is poised to make the most of them. And that's all we have for you on today's episode of Chemically Speaking. Don't forget to subscribe to listen to us on your favorite podcast platform. Better yet, write us a review or jump on the website and get in touch. I'm Dr. Matt Griffith, and we'll be taking a short break next month as the country works its way through the latest COVID outbreak before returning in August with a new episode exploring emerging trends in chemistry education. We hope you all stay safe and healthy And until we speak again, I hope your days are brightened by a little tweak of chemistry.